Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. A few weeks ago, renowned doctor, vaccine scientist, and educator Peter Hotez came on the show to answer some questions about the state of the coronavirus. Since then, we've seen the pandemic flood over America. Tens of thousands have died, and hotspots continue to break out across the nation. And yet, President Trump seems hellbent on reopening the economy and attacking the science, scientists, and elected officials trying to save lives at every turn. Republican governors are already taking action to open businesses and recreation areas. Frothy-mouthed protesters are endangering us all, and we still have no effective treatment for the disease. And so today I've asked Dr. Hotez back to update us on where things stand with the coronavirus at home and around the world. I'm instructing my administration to halt funding of the World Health Organization while a review is conducted. A few hours ago, there was easily a thousand people standing on the steps of the Capitol, shoulder to shoulder, not wearing masks protesting the state house here to talk about how they want to reopen the economy. Scientists and doctors are warning of a possible second wave of COVID-19. When that could happen and what it would look like are the biggest questions. As for our current president, after starting the day calling for the liberation of three states that are observing his government guidelines. In Jacksonville, dozens of people taking to the sand as city leaders there reopen beaches and parks. Governors in some of the state's hardest hit by the coronavirus said earlier Sunday they need more help from the Trump administration to ramp up testing. Hello, my name is Dr. Peter Hotez, and I believe that everybody in the United States deserves access to new drugs and therapies and vaccines for COVID-19, regardless of their ability to pay. Sorry, not sorry. Dr. Hotez, thank you so much for joining us again. A lot has happened since last we spoke, some of it good and a lot of it bad. (laughs) Can you just give us an overview about the status of the pandemic in America right now? Well, of course, the big overview for the U.S. was this really horrible humanitarian tragedy in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and the Northeast. And we're still not nearly done. It's probably still going to go on for a few more weeks, but I'd never thought we would see that level of devastation in terms of death and admissions to the hospital and intensive care unit. And it's given me a real perspective on how things can go terribly wrong 
here in the United States. So for me now, it's all hands on deck and making certain that what happened in New York, especially in places like Queens, New York, which, you know, I know you know very well, would never happen again elsewhere in the U.S. Well, I mean, you called it a humanitarian crisis. Why do you identify it as that? Well, it's the level of suffering that I'm seeing. And it goes beyond, you know, it's not just the statistics of the number of deaths. I mean, we're hearing about scores of school teachers, for instance, getting sick and dying. And even, you know, there was an article that really broke my heart about the doormen in New York. Yeah. How huge numbers of them have gotten sick and died. And I went to medical school and graduate school in New York at Cornell and Rockefeller. And, you know, you'd have a bad day in the lab and you'd just take a walk. And the only people up at that hour would be the guys standing in the doorway. And on some evenings, they'd be your only friend and you'd have a little you know, nothing, little informal chat with them. And just to know that all of those people are getting so sick and dying is really heartbreaking. So that's the situation in New York and New Jersey. And the thing that I'm really concerned about now is whether we've really learned our lessons from New York and New Jersey. Why do I say that? So for instance, here in Texas, we saw what was happening in New York. We implemented social distancing early on really ahead of the virus. So we never saw a peak, anything close to resembling what happened in New York and New Jersey. And that's been great. We've not had a huge number of admissions in the Texas Medical Center to the hospital or the ICU. We've got some, but it's definitely a manageable problem. But now I think we're starting to hear from the governors that now they're anxious to open things up again. Right. And relax social distancing, even though a number of the epidemiologic models, and I know the epidemiologic models are not perfect, they have their flaws, are basically saying for some states like Texas, we need to maintain that social distancing until June 1, until we go back to containment mode. And the problem is that the governors in many parts of the South and in the West just don't have the appetite for that. They're going to open things up earlier than June 1 and maybe even by next week or the week afterwards. And I understand the realities of closing down the economy. I understand the hardships that many people are facing, that they're not getting a paycheck. And I understand the need to open segments of the economy. The piece that bothers me is that I'm not confident we have the public health infrastructure that's been put into place in order to manage what's going to be a new surge. We don't have places of business well set up to do testing on a regular basis. We don't have the staff in place from public health agencies to do the contact tracing. We don't have syndromic surveillance activities in place. So I'm very worried, not so much for the next few weeks, but I'm worried we're going to start to see a brand new round of surges that could even dwarf the ones we've been seeing. And it would happen starting over the summer. So I'm very worried and going on cable news a lot explaining this, that come July and August, if we don't have a national plan in place, not only around the economic recovery, but linking it to public health, we could even see unfold a situation that's worse than we saw in March and now the first couple of weeks of April. Well, the thing that I don't understand is, has it peaked? And with governors wanting to open up their states, will there even be a single national peak or are we just going to keep 
peeking, you know, state by state and not get on the same page with this? And is it necessary to get on the same page? That's basically the worry, right? The peak in New York, according to the models, has already happened about a few days ago and the one in Texas, maybe in another week or so. And then the numbers are start to go down. The problem is we often forget this is like the eye of a hurricane. Just because the first wave of the hurricane hit and you see the eye doesn't mean now you can go outside and play. It means the second part is coming. So that part has to be considered. And then not having a system in place to prevent a bigger resurgence in the summer right. is of great concern. Because if you look at the models, and yeah, anybody can do this, by the way, it's, that's one thing I like about the models that they've set up in Seattle is anybody can go to it, just go to healthdata.org and you can click on your state and see what's happening. The models basically show a peak and then a decline going all the way to August and don't really try to predict what's going to happen after that because they don't know what's going to happen in terms of relaxing social distancing. I understand the urgency to relax social distancing. It's just that without a plan in place for monitoring it, we're just asking for a huge problem, potentially much bigger than the one we've already faced. In previous pandemics, we've seen, like you said, second waves that are even deadlier than the first wave. What do we need to do to prevent this from happening here? And are we doing it? Well, as you know, Liz, I'm a vaccine scientist and I'm not necessarily an epidemiologist, but it's common sense in conversations I've had with the modelers says unless we need now in every major city a fairly granular and detailed plan in place that has the ability to do diagnostic testing at the workplace that has the contact tracing that has the syndromic surveillance so that as new cases start to pop up, we can get on top of it very early. Let me give you an example. Let's say, I don't know, pick your store, Target or Walmart. If you're an employee at one of those stores, you now have to be looking over your shoulder at your colleagues, at your fellow employees. Hey, does that person have uh, COVID? Is, they, is without symptoms? Hey, does that person have it? You're never going to know. So you're going to be. You're also going to be terrified about going back to work in many instances. So you need to know that your place of employment is on top of this, and they're doing regular testing and getting those people to self-quarantine or isolate, and then being able to trace all of the contacts. So you can do this on a regular basis. And that's really important because we've already seen, especially in the Midwest, some huge plants with hundreds of people yeah. infected in those, especially some of the meat processing plants and those kinds of things. So this is going to be a known problem. And I'm concerned that the major message coming out of the White House press briefings and then not from the governors, it's all about the economic recovery as though this thing has just gone away like a hurricane or a tornado and not and sort of oblivious to the fact that this is just round one of what could be many rounds unless we figure this out. Okay, I just want to switch gears for a second to talk about what's happening from a global perspective, what's happening around the world. So what's happening around the world, to give you the quick answer, is we don't know because as bad as testing has been in the U.S., especially in places like Texas, which ranks 49. Who knows what's happening in Nigeria? Who knows what's happening in, you name it, in Bangladesh and in Bolivia, right? I mean, there's just probably very little surveillance or testing. So we are hearing terrible reports, for instance, in Ecuador and Guayaquil of 
bodies piling up on the streets. And imagine what it's going to be like when this virus races through the crowded urban areas of Mumbai or Delhi or, right. or in Africa and Lagos. So there's a huge global health component, and that's why we're developing a global health vaccine. It's a low-cost vaccine that is not only going to be inexpensive, but also we can transfer the technology so it could be made locally. So places like India and Brazil have their own capacity for making recombinant protein vaccines. It's already, we use the same technology as the one the hepatitis B vaccine uses. So this is going to be widely accessible, and I think that's going to be very important. And then we also need a strong and empowered World Health Organization. I mean, the reason we need the WHO is not to protect us so much in Europe and North America. We need it because that's the only thing we have for some of the low and middle income countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And so I'm really very troubled by these threats to cut off funding from the WHO. You know, I try not to, I know you're a little more out there. I try because in order to keep talking to all sides, try to avoid direct criticism of the president or the White House. And this is one of the few times I really felt I had to do it because we have to keep that funding going to WHO. And just explain to people why that's so important if people don't know what WHO does. Well, the World Health Organization, which is headquartered in Geneva, is the major organization that assists countries with major health problems and health crises and global pandemics and infectious diseases is definitely in their lane and is one of the major things that they're good at, providing guidance to countries about how to do the control, how to implement treatment programs or vaccination programs. This is a critical function of the World Health Organization, and they run on a very modest budget to begin with. I think their biennial budget is about $6 billion or roughly $3 billion a year, which is roughly about a fourth of the budget for the Centers for Disease Control. So to govern the health of the entire world for a budget one-fourth of the Centers for Disease Control is pretty modest to begin with. And now you're going to threaten to cut off funds from one of its major donors. I think its single largest donor, which is the United States. And I'm really hoping that doesn't happen. So I've been having conversations with the leadership of the World Health Organization and hopefully can make some progress on that front. But I know, Alyssa, you've been so active with these international organizations. I mean, look at all the great work you've done with UNICEF, for instance. I just think that people don't understand the connection that we all have to each other and how something like the World Health Organization is so important. And if you can't feel the compassion or the empathy of why it's important for people in Angola, Africa, can you at least understand how important it is for people here to be healthy and to have the knowledge that our health is dependent on their health. I think that's a great point that you make. And you're absolutely right. I mean, what happens now if we have a massive epidemic in the countries of Central Latin America, in Central America, Mexico, Ecuador? I mean, do people really think it's just not going to show up at our doorstep? I mean, you can build the wall as high as you want, but the virus is still going to get through. And, you know, I'd like to think we've learned that lesson. And, you know, you can do all the work you want to stop immigration or enact travel bans. It's not going to 
stop this virus. It might slow it down a little bit, but it's not going to stop it. And so I agree, even if you don't understand the importance of helping nations like Angola recognize how it's in our own enlightened self-interest. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Well, I know that you're a doctor and not a politician, but we live in really strange times where the two are deeply intertwined. I'm just curious to know how you see the pandemic affecting the 2020 election. You know, it's a very interesting question, and I hadn't thought about it until, you know, I was doing an interview, I think it was MSNBC, and I was on, and right before, you know, you're getting ready and you hear the conversation going on. And right before I was to go on, the show was this guy, Chuck Todd, and he made the statement that really resonated with me. He said the winner of the 2020 election will go to the one who can convince Americans that he can lead the COVID-19 recovery. Mm. And I think that's right. But I would just add, not just from the economic point of view, but the whole COVID recovery and having the situational awareness and big vision to recognize that if you allow the disease to return or allow the disease to return multiple times, you could put all the economic recovery plans you want in place. It'll eventually evaporate because it won't be effective. So it's going to be the one who, yes, who can lead the COVID recovery, but at a very comprehensive level and really understand not that the presidential candidate has to do it all himself, but be able to have a team in place that can integrate economic recovery with the epidemiologic modeling and the public health control and present a vision three or four years out of what the country looks like. And I think that's going to sell the American people on our next president. Well, when you were last on the show, we actually talked about antibody therapy derived from plasma. Is there an update on this? Yes. We're developing a vaccine, and of course, vaccines are the longest time horizon out at at least a year, maybe two years away. But there are a lot of other therapies coming online now. One of them is this antibody therapy where you identify individuals who have become infected, develop an antibody response, and then you could use that plasma to treat other individuals. And so that's underway now in multiple academic health centers. We're also been talking a lot about using smaller doses of that as a kind of prophylaxis to prevent people from getting sick. In other words, in the smaller dose, you could potentially inject that into a healthcare worker or first responder, and those antibodies will stay around for a couple of weeks and keep them from getting sick for a couple of weeks. So that might be a promising use for it as well. And then we've now also been hearing about a couple of new antiviral drugs like remdesivir that may start showing some promise for the treatment of this. And maybe we can even look at it as a type of pre-exposure prophylaxis, kind of COVID-19 prep, 
as you will. And that would be very exciting. So I think everyone's talking about the vaccine, the vaccine, the vaccines are the furthest timeline out, but there's going to be a lot of other technologies rolling through. I want to talk about the technologies for a second. Are there any new technologies that are changing how we look at the pandemic, how we manage the pandemic, and how we will eventually beat it? I mean, we're hearing a lot about Google and Apple and exactly what is their participation when you hear this. Because I think the other thing that American people are worried about is a lack of privacy that tracking would entail. Yeah, and these are still relatively new. For instance, I've had a couple of conversations with the CEO of a Bay Area company called Kinza, spelled K-I-N-S-A, and it's run by this guy, Inder Singh. And it's a really interesting app that's connected to a thermometer. So it's actually a whole health app, but a component of it is measuring people's body temperature. You get your temperature and you can type in your symptoms as well. And this is what we call syndromic surveillance, that is identifying clusters of people getting sick. And it looks as though they've got this fine tune to be able to pick up clusters of new COVID-19 epidemics or clusters of cases in order to pounce on this relatively quickly. And also they've been able to use it to show that social distancing can decrease the number of cases as well. So it has promise. I don't think we should think of it as a standalone technology. It's going to be a technology that would be used in conjunction with the usual diagnostic testing and the contact tracing. But I think it adds another piece to fighting this virus. Now, the privacy issues, I'm not an expert on that, and I recognize that they're potentially of concern to people. But, you know, that's a, that's a good conversation to have with Binder Singh or the CEOs of some of these other companies. I want to go back to antibodies for a second because I've read a few small studies that suggest that not everyone develops antibodies or maybe has fewer antibodies than expected. What would this mean really for vaccine development? Well, the reason we started developing SARS vaccines back in 2003 is we knew that people, if they were infected with the virus, developed an antibody response, and that antibody response stayed around for several years, and it seemed to be linked with resistance to reinfection. And we just assumed that that was going to happen with this new SARS-2 virus. That's the other name for the COVID-19 virus, SARS-CoV-2. And I think in most instances, that probably does happen. You get infected, you develop an antibody, and now there's some studies done in rhesus macaques, non-human primates, showing that if those non-human primates develop an antibody response, the, the scientists are unable to reinfect them. So it is indicative mm. that it's likely associated with protection. That's the general rule. However, we are hearing there are definitely instances where people are either one, not developing an antibody response or a very low antibody response. And we're waiting to see better data to know if that correlates with whether or not you have asymptomatic infection or not. So we're still learning about that. I think most people accept the fact that the majority of people will, most scientists accept the fact the majority of people who get infected with this virus will mount a big antibody response. The antibody will stay up for a while and protect you against infection. We know there are cases that this is not the case, but my hope is that as the numbers roll out, 
those instances will be in the minority. I've known you for a long time now, right? How many years? I remember the day we first met. It was at the Clinton Global Initiative in 2006. Well, there you go. A lot of years. And we've done a lot of good work together. And I have to say, I've never heard you as concerned as I'm hearing you in this conversation. And it's different than when we spoke a few weeks ago. So I want to give you the opportunity. First of all, I want you to talk directly to the people that are out protesting the public safety measures around the country. What would you say to those people? What I would say to those people is we've seen what this virus can do in the United States. We've seen what it can do in New York. We've seen how hundreds of people will wind up in the intensive care unit and the tragic circumstances of dying alone because their loved ones can't be by their bedside to visit them in their final hours and minutes. And we've seen that this is not only a disease of the very oldest or the infirm. These are many otherwise healthy young adults. And that unfortunately, this situation that we've seen in New York was preventable had we gotten on top of this faster. And we are now in a position, I'm worried about that, we will see what happened in Queens and in New York play out over and over again in other urban areas of the United States. And we need to take all measures possible to prevent something like that from happening. I mean, I look at those protesters and my blood just boils because to me, it's not only I don't even know what they're protesting or fighting for. But beyond that, it's also just this thing. I'm afraid that people at home watching these protests are saying, well, they're not social distancing and they're not wearing masks. Everything must be okay now. And what that enables past just the protests is what is terrifying for me. And then that coupled with the White House briefings, where they're making it seem like we are on the other side of this, I think it's just such a dangerous combination. So I think finally, I would just like to ask you to make your plea to the American people, to whomever is listening, to why you're concerned and what we need to do, and how people can help. I think the message is the only reason we did not replicate what happened in New York and also and to some extent in Detroit and other parts of the country in places like Texas or Utah or, you know, you name it, was because we learned our lessons from New York and got on top of this early and implemented social distancing. And we have to recognize that we remain just as vulnerable moving into the summer if we don't take aggressive measures to monitor this epidemic and do widespread testing and contact tracing. Otherwise, we could reproduce the situation over and over again. I think what happened is because in certain parts of the country, they did not see such a robust, full-flung epidemic. There is a sense of complacency built in, and I hope that those individuals don't only learn by suffering the same fate. We just don't want to see that. Well, thank you, Dr. Hotez. Thank you for all your work on this, and thanks for the update for my listeners. The most important job elected officials have is to keep us safe. And the president is failing miserably at this. 
He's also trying to suppress the vote in November, railing against safe and secure mail-in voting. And the only way we can correct this is to vote him the fuck out of office. So please, today, visit www.vote.gov. Check your voter registration status. Make sure you're on the voter rolls. Make a voting plan. Make sure your family and friends are registered and they have a voting plan. Because you see, Trump thinks he is powerful, but we have so much more power than he does. And it's time to use it. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.